Welcome to The Man Who Was Scared to Death, a brand new audio documentary from the master of mortality, Mr. Philip Oven. A man who has thought about not existing every day since the age of 12 and has even seen an existential therapist to come to terms with dying. In these recordings, we speak to people who deal with death as part of their daily jobs to see if their views of existence have changed over the years as they try to help Philip come to terms with his own. Today we talk to Eve Morell, dissector of dead bodies. Please note, these recordings took place before COVID, if you can imagine such a time. My name is Eve Morell and I work as a prosector at a medical school. Prosector is basically someone who prepares the pre-dissected body parts that medical students learn from. So um, a lot of the time, if I'm having a nice time, <laughs> that's when I get to do a lot of dissection. Right. So that's when I come into work and I settle down, I do some dissection, I put my earphones in and I start dissecting. Uh, then I'll take a break for lunch and then I'll go and start doing more dissection again and I get minimal distractions. How long is it since they passed away? You, uh, you mentioned that there has to be an amount, a certain amount of time that you don't exceed. What kind of timings are we talking about? Uh, generally, it'll be within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think it's, I think it's a week that we can't exceed. Okay. Um, but it will normally be just, a, you know, one or two days after they've died because it sort of takes a little while to get the turnaround sorted. So the funeral directors will pick them up from wherever they are, or they'll be, you know, or they'll pick them up from a mortuary. Mm-hmm or something like that and body but especially considering what the process is of donating your body and you have to have died of natural causes you Mm -hmm. have to have um you know been proactive enough to actually go through all of the like contacting people and um putting your name down for it because of all of that we don't really tend to get young people Mm -hmm. um and most of the people who we receive bodies from will be um you know, cancer patients, people with dementia, tend to be diseases of old age because we can't take people who've had, again, any kind of unnatural death. We spoke about um, listening to podcasts. Have you, I mean, do you want to reveal any? What's the perfect podcast for when you're slicing and dicing? Oh, gosh, I don't know if there's a perfect one, but (laughs) (laughs) I just listen to any podcasts that I enjoy at the particular time that I'm listening. So um, I listen to quite a lot of current affairs ones, Mm -hmm. a few true crime ones, which potentially is a little bit sick. Wow, (laughs) I suppose, yeah, what they're dealing with at the time. do you, what's your earliest earliest memories of, of death? Because you spoke, you said that you've always been fascinated by the subject. Because uh, none of my family members died until I was a fair bit older. Mm-hmm. But I remember sort of finding out about various family members who died. So um, my mum's, my paternal grandfather, no, maternal grandfather had um, died before I was born. Mm-hmm. So I remember finding out about that. And I remember finding out about a cousin as well who'd, um, who died before I was born. So those are kind of my earliest first-hand experiences with death. But until then, there probably wasn't anything super personal until my first hamster died when I was aged about, oh gosh, I must have been about like 13. Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to give us the hamster's name? Oh, he was called Mr. Mellish. He was the best hamster in the world. Mr. Mellish? Mr. Mellish, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll move on after that. <laughs> Although I do have another hamster-related death anecdote. <laughs> okay, I think we have to get them all out of the way now. <laughs> so um, 
a while ago, um, me and one of my colleagues were discussing childhood pets, um, including Mr. Mellish. He told me that he'd had a hamster with quite um, quite an individual name. Mm-hmm. And then a bit later in the day, we'd received a, a body and we looked at a tattoo on that body and this name was tattooed no on her way. body and we were so freaked out because it was a rare name i'm not going to reveal it okay, because um for confidentiality and things like that but it was it was not a common name and we were both very freaked out <laughs> well funny enough does that give you some sense or do you have that some sense that there is something after death um or are you religious do you, are you spiritual Personally, not at all, really. (laughs) I don't know. I just, um, I have the sort of opinion of, um, I can't remember what the law's called, but Mm -hmm. the, um, that, the, you know, that rule that the simplest explanation is normally, is normally the right one. And I think, you know, when you take into account what our consciousness is in the first place, i.e. like electrical, Mm -hmm. you know, signals in our brains, which then just stop after we die, I think it's a bit far-fetched. Yeah, think anything else happens. So you're sort of quite a practical, yes. practical uh, opinion of of existence. Yes, but then at the same time, when I imagine actually what it must be like to die, I think, oh no, must go somewhere. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that's well, that's that's the dream you see. Because my my whole my whole fear is the whole like never ever it popping into existence again, and that obviously that freaks me out quite a lot. But if I knew that there was just one example of someone coming back or, you know, a ghostly apparition or something that I could sort of hold on to, then I'd feel a lot better because at least it proves there's even a one in a millionth chance yeah. that something might happen. So you talk about the um, the tattoo hamster extravaganza. <laughs> what, have anything else really weird happened in your working mm. days? Um. I mean, tattoos you mentioned, have they been an odd tattoo? My, my, um, my, um, the mother of my child her brother has a do not resuscitate tattoo. Oh, interesting. He's a policeman. Um, I'm not sure if it's if that would actually hold in uh, in a hospital, but uh, I feel like you'd have to sign a form. I think you would probably have to sign a form <laughs> as well. But um, yeah, I mean, is it have been any unexpected items on someone, or as you say, the, the person coming in wearing a suit? Yeah. Well, that same person who came in in the suit had a note in the, in their pocket oh, right. from a loved one, which is obviously quite upsetting. Oh, wow. We get a lot of people coming in um, coming in with teddy bears and things like that. I don't really know why. <laughs> um, yeah, so. I suppose there's someone at some point is thinking that they, they, they should take that with them. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, um, we get a lot of things like that, which, yeah, I guess the families send in with the idea that they'll keep it with them. Right. Which normally is not really the case we can't keep it with them but we do try and keep a hold of them and then mm. send them off when we send them for cremation sure. we try and send the items is with that them. what would happen to to all the bodies you um you've dealt with yes every every single body gets cremated okay and would the family i presume would they go to the cremation or it depends on the family some of them choose to some of them don't they get the option if they yeah. want to so um especially if the families ask they will be they'll be told that like when uh, you know what date the cremation is going to be on yeah. um and then they can go and we have like sort of hurried along like releasing a donor for yeah. um for people who've been really desperate to attend the cremation what kind of percentage like if you had to stick a finger in the air do you think of the families that would 
You know what? I don't really know because um, that's sort of dealt with more by the people who actually deal with the donation yeah. process themselves, which we don't do at the medical school. Okay. So um, sometimes, you know, when it impacts on us, like when we've hurried along, like a donor being released, mm-hmm. or if we have to send a donor to a, a different place for some reason and we have to have a different funeral director pick it up, then we'll know about it. But um For the most part, really, I've got no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking, obviously, on air as such. Outside of your work, how often does the conversation turn to mortality? Or do you try to avoid that? I don't. I definitely don't avoid it. Um, I mean, it's something I care quite deeply about. Um, it's something that's always been part of my ambition. And especially when I meet a new person and they ask me what I do, obviously that comes with a, a yes. great big slew of questions. Oh um, my God, you do what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, surprisingly, the response is overwhelmingly positive. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like anything. I, another person I spoke to as part of this, you know, the, the jobs are there because they need to be done. And yeah, so it exactly. shouldn't be anything unusual but yeah. I have found that pretty much across the board they the people did tend to have an interest in in mortality before doing these jobs because presumably for someone like me it would be the, the wrong job to do because oh, I'd be like you know upset on a daily basis but it is still you know a hard-hitting job do you guys get like counselling as part of it or are you, is, there, is there people you can talk to well I mean a lot of the time with jobs like mine and like for instance like mortuary jobs and things like that these departments tend to be really close-knit so you know if something's really upset someone you know there is sort of an unspoken agreement that we can go to one another about it okay but I don't know it's it's quite rare that anything happens that really upsets us too much you get quite hardened to it after a while (laughs) yeah I can imagine And, and do you think the more experience you get less likely it is that you're going to be emotionally affected by it or can you can you foresee a time when something might happen like a you know an unfortunate story attached to someone who comes in you know I, I suppose that can still get you quite upset I don't know because uh, well my own father actually passed away a couple of years ago from liver cancer mm-hmm. and um when I first started working at my current job, one of the bodies that we had 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 the same quite rare type of cancer that he'd had. Yeah. So that I sort of expected to be a bit difficult. But even when it's something quite personal like that, I'm still I've still found that I'm quite good at separating myself yeah. from it in just the right manner so that I'm always like um, empathetic and respectful. But I don't find myself getting upset about things. Is it the kind of role you can see yourself doing for a long time or is this you know well at the moment I'm currently applying for a job in a mortuary instead okay so that will be doing more of the Mm post-mortem type work so that will be doing sort of autopsies essentially and that kind of thing which is the kind of job that I can see myself doing for a long time it's that's really where my passion lies that's what I've always wanted to do is that like a natural progression would you say not necessarily no really um although quite a lot of people do end up going from like you know a department like mine into a mortuary Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say it's a natural progression because uh sort of they're quite different fields like to go from like what is essentially academia type job to something like that it's not 
it's not really particularly common. And more than anything, it's a pay cut. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. No one needs that. Did you, I hear you used to work in a hospice as well. Is that right? Yes, I did. I did spend a bit of time volunteering in a hospice. Okay. How, uh, did, you, how did you find out? Because obviously that's the other side because you then got people who, who haven't passed. I mean, how did you find that differently emotionally? Or I don't know. I sort of, again, I, I've always had this disposition of um, being the right amount of detached and to be fair I never really got to know a lot of the patients that well so it was quite it was quite different in that sense for one thing but also I don't know I was doing it alongside my studies Mm -hmm. so I was already sort of dealing with the other side of it but it is a completely different animal to be honest with um you know sort of seeing the actual people themselves and sort of caring for them towards the end. But then there was so much variation in the people who were in the hospice at the time as well, like variation in terms of how healthy they were or how much they were sort of struggling or if they were close to death themselves. So it was quite varied but obviously when you're in a setting like that you're kind of away from it when the the time is coming yeah because you know the family will sort of lock themselves in there and you're not needed to to go in and uh, offer them water and stuff in fact it's best if you stay out yes probably the best um you mentioned uh your dad presumably you were doing this 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 job whilst do you think it helped you cope doing the kind of role you do so when my when my dad died I was still studying right and I think um I don't know if it necessarily helped with the grief or anything like that the main time I noticed it making things easier was when I went to go and see him in the funeral home sure because I wasn't actually there when he died um I was at uni still Mm. even though I knew it was coming um, it was it just worked out better that way. Mm-hmm. I think that he wanted to be like just with my mom, and sure. I think my mom didn't want me to see him in that state either. So by the time you know, by the time I actually got back home, he was like long gone. But it did definitely help me when I went into the funeral home to go and see his body because um, you know I could only it was it was pretty hard to see my dad uh, no longer alive. So. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I've never, I mean, I, I've never had that. Both my parents, you know, are, are, are still going. The closest I've had, um, in fact, the only dead body I've ever seen is my wife's uh, mother passed away mm-hmm. last January. And yeah, it was because they're Irish. So they had the whole proper wake with the open casket wow, and yeah. all the people coming to the house. And then on the night before the burial, you, you, know, you need to sort of stay uh, with the body. So I yeah. sat there between, I think, two and four in the morning and it's a it's a very odd experience when you've never seen it i mean half of me expected her just to sit up at some point which is crazy and then the other half you know i did end up sort of you know holding a hand for a bit and obviously then you get the the temperature of the body i mean do you think like everyday people working or not even working or viewing dead bodies is is a good thing because it gives more of an open idea to what happens to us after the die rather than just having our heads in the sand do you think it's probably more positive for, for human beings i mean i'd definitely say so i think that we have a very strange relationship with death in our particular mm-hmm. culture 
you know, we've, we're very, very distanced from it. And yep. it's pretty rare to find people who've even seen a dead body because most people wouldn't mm -hmm. go and view a relative after they died. Most people wouldn't have an open casket funeral. Mm -hmm. In fact, like when, when it was my own dad, it was very much just me and my mum who were in there. Right. Like nobody, nobody else came. It was only us who wanted to see him, not my brother, not anyone else. Not I wonder if it's, it's is there difficulty in, in dealing with the inevitable or, or maybe even a feeling like, like even when we're, we're when we pass you sort of like it's, it's not polite to go and have yeah. a look at the body which is crazy isn't it because yeah it is bizarre and I, especially if it's someone who wasn't necessarily as close they yeah. would definitely feel oh it's rude for me to go and have a look so you should see at Kath's mum I mean they had everyone from the village come round at yeah. one point there'd be people literally working who work in the shop but it's just the done thing, you know, yeah. when you get into these more rural communities, then uh, it's seen as being, you know, polite to, to actually go and, and witness the body. Yeah, no, it's strange because, um, well, my my girlfriend's told me this story a couple mm -hmm. of times where she used to work for um, a home fundraising company. So she would go around knocking on people's doors and one of her colleagues one time knocked on someone's door. Uh, he was raising money for cancer research at that point and uh, knocked on the door and was like, Oh yeah, I'm raising money for cancer research. Do you want to give any? Person who answered the door said, "Oh yeah, this is very close to my heart. My, uh, you know, my mother's actually just died." And he was like, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear that." And then he was like, "Yeah, she's just in here. Oh, Do you want to come and like come and see?" And did, he was like, uh. "Did he go in?" <laughs> he did. Yeah. I suppose you can't not at that point. No, uh, you're definitely in too deep. <laughs> well, exactly. well, actually, uh, funny enough, as I've aged, unfortunately, I've definitely more open to the idea of of, of seeing seeing dead bodies like your cadavers and things do members of the public ever come in or are they allowed to, to witness you at work or is it just no we only ever let people come in from inside the university right. basically or anyone who's like an official visitor to the university that kind of thing so it's pretty rare that outsiders get to come in mostly it's just students and us um, so yeah, no, it's quite a closed off thing, but you certainly at a medical school, even if, um, a family has decided that they do want to know what's being done with their loved one, yeah. it's, you, you don't really. <laughs> so, so if, if, if someone has donated their body, you're saying mm -hmm. even if a family had a interest to see what happened to the body, presumably after but you probably wouldn't advise that that Oh no, absolutely. Happen. No, that would not be a thing that we would advise because I think it would be quite different to what they would imagine potentially. But also, I don't know, it's quite... I don't know, it's quite a drastic drastic change from what their loved one would have looked like in life, um, especially, you know, even after, like, you know, after just being embalmed even, yeah. their loved one isn't going to look the way they looked before. Presumably it might be difficult if, um, good luck in your in your job search, by the way, but <laughs> presumably you. in autopsies it's slightly different because yes. the families would come in to identify and, and that kind of thing. Yes, no, that is very different in a mortuary setting because... Um, Mortuaries will almost always have a separate viewing room as well for family members to come in and like view their loved one. So um, that's why uh, reconstruction after an autopsy or a postmortem is really important because a lot of the time families will come in and want to sort of see their like deceased loved ones and it is quite amazing what like what uh, technicians can do when it comes to reconstruction like. I've watched a couple of postmortems myself and, you know, like they can take an entire face off and then just fold it back over and it looks like nothing's happened. There was a film 
with John Travolta, much similar, but I don't know. I can't remember oh, really? what it was called. Yeah. Face Off, that's what it Face was. Face Off. They, it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was him and someone else, and they literally swapped faces. What? But now I know it can happen, so it's well, fine. there you go, yeah. <laughs> so have you, you've had your interview then. What, what, what would they look for? I mean, obviously, you've got the skills and the knowledge. I mean... Are they going to be? Are they judging on on whether you can cope, you know, emotionally and that kind of thing? Do you think that's what they're interested in? Well, that's quite a big thing when you're applying for a mortuary <laughs> job. Is um, they want to make sure that you're not going to walk into your first po- post mortem and just fall over. Yes. Um, that would that's be a, a bit disaster. inconvenient. Yeah, gone through the whole hiring process and then <laughs> can't oh, cope first with date. Nope, can't do it. <laughs> so there's that kind of thing. So that was when because I, I was applying before I got this job, mm-hmm. and then I've just applied for this one now. And and that was the main thing that sort of had prevented me from getting jobs uh, before was that I hadn't had any actual experience watching a real post-mortem. Yes. Because, um, you know, I'd done dissections and things like that. I knew I was comfortable around the dead, but I hadn't seen, you know, the sights and smells of a, a genuine, yeah. um, the, the actual thing. So... Um, that is one of the main things they look for, um, just to make sure that you're comfortable with the dead. And then I think they also need to rule out people who might be a bit, you know, like, what's the term I should use? Not voyeuristic? Yeah, voyeuristic. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, yes, of course. But, yes. I think uh, I think it's quite common to get people applying who are, are just wanting to sort of see, like... Dead bodies. yeah. So that, that's an extreme way like of that. doing it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you thought about your own mortality? I mean, I presume doing the job you do, you would be happy to bequeath your body for yes. medical science? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I've, I've thought about whether I'd bequeath my body, and I definitely would. I haven't done the paperwork yet, but no. again, I think that's another barrier to young people donating their bodies as we just say, go, mm, I, nah, can't I can't be bothered. Don't, I haven't done a will yet, and I'm 44, so... <laughs> oh, the wills. Who needs them? Well, uh, <laughs> my son, I presume. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I've, thought, I've thought that much about it, but I don't know, when I try and sort of picture my own death, it's a bit blurry and that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever... That's that's the irony, despite probably thinking about not existing and mortality every day for the last 30-odd years, 30... God knows how long, 36 years, let's say. Um, I've never thought or pictured, yeah, your own demise. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, funny enough, I, the first interview I did for this was with a, a horror film director, oh, and he had a very exact way that he... Well, not exact, but he had pictured it, and he said, oh, no, exactly what's out. I'm going to be 87, going <laughs> to be in bed. And it's like, okay, that's that's a bit strange. But I suppose doing what he does, you know, he's got that sort of fascination with how and when it happens. My image of it, for me personally, uh, my ideal death would be just walking down the street, minding my own business. Someone shoots me in the back of my head without even knowing. Wow. So I'm just gone, and that's the end, and I don't know anything. You should of move it. to America because uh, <laughs> sounds quite possible, no. really. <laughs> <laughs> Shot in the back. I think that's the, yeah. Have you had an age in mind? No, just I just don't want to know. <laughs> just don't, yeah, <laughs> that's the main thing for me is I don't want to know. Well, I think I decided, speaking with Sam, the horror film director, that I'd want to be drunk. Oh, lovely! I yeah. just think that you have that sort of sense of of impunity when you're when you when you um, had a few drinks that actually it probably wouldn't be a big deal. Of course, the trouble is you never <laughs> wake up. But yeah, so yeah. I, I I foresee some kind of ridiculous decision making whilst drunk. So hopefully, yeah, it wouldn't be too too. It would be quite sudden. Yeah. But I don't think being sniped is is being uh, <laughs> is being popped <laughs> on my mind. What what kind of um yeah what deaths do 
would you really, really want to avoid if, if you had the choice? Oh, I wouldn't really want cancer. Yes, yeah. it does seem a real, a really horrific, yeah. horrific disease. Yeah, no, I definitely would want to avoid that, especially if I was still young. I think, um, I think when people get older and they get diagnosed with cancer, they tend to be a bit more sort of accepting of the fact they're going to die, especially, mm. I don't know if it was necessarily an accurate image that he was portraying but when my dad was diagnosed with cancer he was only 60 but he still um he was still quite sort of cool with it in a way like he was just like well I've had my lot that's fine I guess I've just got to get on with it so that kind of attitude is what I hope to have but (laughs) I guess it's quite a primitive thing that stops us from accepting it because you know you've obviously got this innate wish to preserve your life Mm. most of the time um, unless there's something wrong, and I think that that sort of prim- that sort of primitive desire, and also like you know, you look at animals and they don't know what death is. No, like we're we're very individual in that, and I think that the fact that we can't imagine death is kind of a hang on from that. Really, I wonder if it would be better if you could. Yeah, I um, think I would feel a lot more comfortable with it if I could. So I suppose if you if you felt calmed by knowing exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Maybe overall, that's you know that that means you're more emotionally stable because mm-hmm. you are the one in control. Yeah, I would I would hope to go that way for sure. But then um, you hear about there is there's a there's a phenomenon called uh, I believe it's called anger anime, which is where people will come in with some sort of like heart condition or something into A and E, and they know they they know that they're dying. Yeah, and they're terrified of it. So, like, you know, people will come in and they'll be like, doctor, I'm dying. Please help me. Please do something. I'm dying. And then they do. And even if the doctor can't work out what's wrong with them yet. Right. Which is quite a frightening <laughs> I wonder if it is that, that primitive that, yeah, like they, you know, obviously a lot of animals, domesticated animals, will take themselves away yeah. to die alone. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that would be most people's greatest fear is to be utterly scared. Yeah. You know, in, in, in those moments, because that can't, that, yeah, I mean, it, it's impossible to put yourself in that position. Absolutely. But um, I can't imagine that being very pleasant. <laughs>